Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a sermon titled, Do You Need a Thanksgiving Do-Over? Now, an important message from Dr. Tom Goodman. I read this article in the Wall Street Journal and uh, it said, uh, researchers have found that adults who frequently feel grateful have more energy, more optimism, more social connections, and more happiness than those who do not. They're also less likely to be depressed, envious, greedy, or alcoholics. They earn more money, sleep more soundly, exercise more regularly, and have greater resistance to viral infections. In other words, the national holiday that uh, we experienced this past Thursday could have been really good for your emotional and mental and spiritual health. I say it could have been really good but because for some of us, we went through the entire day that our nation calls Thanksgiving Day without once giving thanks. Do you need a Thanksgiving do-over? I don't know about when uh, you were kids, depending on your age, but when I was a kid and we were out in the yard and we were playing a game and somebody flubbed up what they were intended to do, they just declared do-over and everybody knew immediately what that meant. That meant that this person was allowed to have a second try. Uh, golfers call it a mulligan, taking a mulligan when you, know, you get a do-over on a shot and there are actually explicit rules on when and how you can engage in a mulligan. Maybe you need a Thanksgiving mulligan a Thanksgiving do-over. If that's the case, then the psalm we're going to look at today will help tremendously. I want you to find Psalm 111 in your Bibles or also in your sermon notes that are found in our online bulletin at hillcrest.church bulletin. Now, you could call this psalm a Thanksgiving ABCs because in the Hebrew, each sentence begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters in it. The English language alphabet has 26 letters in it. And it was some years back, there was somebody, I've forgotten who now, had written out a paraphrase of Psalm 111 using 22 of the English language alphabet letters uh, so that you could kind of get some sort of sense of what it would have felt like for a Hebrew-speaking person to run across Psalm 111. Let's take a look at it in this paraphrase using the ABCs. All my heart shall praise Jehovah before the congregation of the righteousness. Deeds of goodness are the deeds of Jehovah, earnestly desired of all them that have pleasure therein. For his righteousness endureth forever. Glorious and honorable is his work. He hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. In Jehovah is compassion and goodness. Jehovah hath given meat to them that fear him, keeping his covenant forever, learning his people the power of his works, making them to possess the heritage of the heathen, not save truth and equity are the works of his hands, ordered and sure are his commands. Planted fast forever and ever, righteous and true are his testimonies. Salvation hath he sent unto his people, their covenant hath he made fast forever. Upright and holy is his name. Verily, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yea, a good understanding have all they that do thereafter. Zealously shall he be praised forever. God bless the reading of his word. An alphabetical listing 
of all that we have to be thankful for. There are actually several places in the Bible that use this uh, alphabetical acrostic. There are a few Psalms, and even in the Proverbs, the last uh, chapter of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 31, when you get to that, that uh, outline of the ideal wife, it's actually laid out in an alphabetical acrostic, A, B, C, D, E, F, and so on, at least in the Hebrew form. Now, now why did the uh, ancient peoples do this in some of the Psalms and even in the Proverbs? Why did they do this? I think for one reason, it was for memorization, made memorization easier. But more than just as a memory memory aid, I think also the alphabetical acrostic was a Hebrew way of saying something in its fullness. So in Proverbs or in Psalm uh, chapter 111, what we hear is this this poet saying, I've got so much to be thankful for. I've got to use every letter in the alphabet to express my thanks to God. So if you want a Thanksgiving do-over, if you want a Thanksgiving mulligan, then Psalm 111 can help. This psalm tells you the context and the content of good Thanksgiving. The context of Thanksgiving is found in verse 1. The content of Thanksgiving is found in verses 2 through 10. So we need to pay attention to both. First of all, verse 1 tells us the context of good Thanksgiving. There's an inward setting and an outward setting for thanksgiving. The inward setting is your own heart. The outward setting is you in the midst of the people of God. So it must be inward. It must be outward. First of all, it must be inward. You need to thank God with your whole heart. Do you see this in verse one where he expresses it as this resolute determination? I will extol the Lord. Now, for some of us, we look upon gratitude and thanksgiving as simply spontaneous. It just wells up when some good news comes our way. And that is thanksgiving, but that's not all that thanksgiving is. There is sometimes that thanksgiving has to come from a resolute act of the will. There are times in my own past, times in my own life, where I've needed to tell myself to be grateful. I didn't feel that way. Maybe bitterness or unanswered prayer had left me unthankful and ungrateful. Maybe just plain old ordinary apathy, it falls over every one of us from time to time, has left me ungrateful. And in that instance, I have to say to my soul, soul, You are going to praise God whether you feel like it or not. That's what he seems to be saying here in Psalm 111, verse 1. I will extol the Lord. If you need help with your thankfulness, then that's one thing you need to do. You need to give your soul a good talking to and demand that your soul praise God. But notice that this isn't some half-hearted, limp, anemic, sallow effort. He says, I will extol the Lord with what? With all my heart. That word all is comprehensive. What he is saying is, it's not just a part of me, but the whole of me that I'm going to employ in this good work of praising God. Some people will attend churches filled with ancient rituals and tradition and walk out of those churches feeling empty. Other people will walk into churches like ours filled with Bible study, meant to stimulate thinking and motivate holiness, and yet they walk out feeling empty. Some people walk into 
uh, a service where the music is up tempo and the hands are up raised and nevertheless they walk out feeling empty. Why? Because first and foremost, it doesn't have anything to do with what church you walk into, but with what's going on in your own heart. We need to recognize that the context of good thanksgiving starts from within. It doesn't matter how joyful the music is in a church or how thoughtful the sermon is in a church or how old the ritual is in a church if your heart is not in it. So if you need help learning to be thankful, then start here with this determination, this act of the will inside that says, I will extol the Lord. But now in verse 1, the poet gives a broader context, not just inward, but outward, not just with your heart, with, with your whole heart, but he goes on to say, I will extol the Lord with all my heart in where? In the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. So he wanted his voice of praise lifted up with other voices of praise. He had this all-consuming desire to praise God, and he wanted to get together with other people who had an all-consuming desire to praise God. So there's this inward setting for thanksgiving. Thank God with your whole heart. There's this outward setting for thanksgiving. Thank God with other believers. Now, how can participating with other believers help you to become a more thankful person? We find in the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, something that might help us here. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, it says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and to good deeds. Spur one another on. That is a translation of a Greek word that was used in other settings to speak of somebody who could incite a riot. So think about what it would take for you to have the capability of inciting a whole crowd to riot. You'd have to believe in your cause. You'd have to be unabashed and unashamed about getting up in front of people and promoting your cause. You'd have to know the right words that would push the right buttons to get that group to join you. That's the way you incite a riot. And that same word that is that we would translate incite is the same word that's used here in Hebrews chapter 10 to say, we need to spur one another on to love and to good deeds. So when you get together with God's people, the fellowship will incite you. It will stimulate you. It will rouse you. It will spur you on to be the kind of person you ought to be. The singing can recharge your batteries. The preaching can, can rally you. The personal testimonies in your, in your life group can uh, give you the opportunity to be convicted. And that's the reason why we are told in the Old Testament and in the New Testament the importance of being with God's people. It's not just a private experience. It's getting together with other people who have that same priority that you have in your heart as well. You know, this past week, the Supreme Court said that cities and states could not put greater pandemic restrictions on congregations than they were putting on other gatherings of human beings. And that's certainly good news. But I find it interesting that in some instances, the very people who are celebrating that good news are the people who aren't bothering to take advantage of it and get together with God's people when we have the opportunity to do so. Now, of course, not everybody should gather in person just quite yet based on your health or your risk factors. You shouldn't gather in person with other people just quite yet. And we can be thankful for the technology and the technicians who enable us to have an online option of gathering with God's people. Online options certainly can't adequately substitute for getting together with God's people, but nevertheless, 
There is something that happens even when we gather together online with a live service that is going on. We have this sense that we are partners with other people, several hundred of our own church members who are gathered with us. Even if we're alone on a couch at home, we have this opportunity to gather with other people when we're gathered online at 10 a.m. That's why we encourage you to commit week after week to get together at 10 a.m. with us when we are live at worship. Even if you're at home on your couch or on your breakfast table watching it on a computer, when you are watching it as it's going live, you have this sense that you are gathered with other people, even if you're not actually in the building. Uh, Now, the technology that we have, of course, gives people an opportunity to watch the service at any time. And that's really useful, especially if your work schedule requires you to work on Sunday morning, then you can kind of catch up with the service and participate, at least in that recorded way later on. But, but many of us, most of us have the opportunity to uh, be able to gather together online at 10 a.m. And we ought to try to do so. If we can't get together in the building, at least gather live, knowing that there's several hundred other people who are lifting up songs of worship, even as we are doing so at the same time. Countless Christians for countless Sundays have been ready to give up and ready to quit, but they walk into a church building or they they log on online, and after an hour of gathering with God's people for worship, by the end of it, they're ready to face life again. If you're ready to be a more thankful person, if you need a Thanksgiving mulligan, a Thanksgiving do-over, then here's your opportunity. Psalm 111 tells us that you need to pay attention to the context of proper worship. Inwardly, you need to make a decision to thank God. Outwardly, you need to gather as you can with other people who've made a decision to worship God. Now, that's verse 1. But then verses 2 through 10 give to us not just the context of worship, but the content of thanksgiving. Those of us who need to learn how to be thankful need to learn how to mimic Three very simple statements that are found in verses 2 through 10. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for guiding me. Thank you for watching over me. Those are the three things that we see over and over again in verses 2 through 10. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for guiding me. Thank you for watching over me. When children are first learning uh, how to write the alphabet, they are given maybe a pattern on a sheet of paper and they trace the letter A and they trace the letter B and they trace the letter C and through that they learn how to write. You and I are given this Thanksgiving ABCs in Psalm 111 for the same reason. And as we at least mentally and emotionally trace over the lines that are given to us in verses 2 through 10, we learn how to be more thankful people. So first, from verses 5 and 9, we see that we should be thankful because God has saved us. Both of these verses, verses 5 and 9, speak of salvation as a covenant that God has entered into with us. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is a pact. It is a contract. It is an agreement. But this beautiful statement, set of verses in uh, in verses 5 and 9 tell us that this pact, this agreement, this covenant that we are in with God is a covenant that God has initiated with us and that God will protect. And that's a remarkable thing. First of all, verse 9 tells us that he initiated this covenant with us. 
It says he provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Now, the Bible tells us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, to use a, use a quote from one of the Bible verses. That verse lets us know, or those, those verses let us know, that if God didn't initiate the action of saving us, then we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. He got the process started. Even those of us who uh, regard ourselves as seekers after God, once we come to God, we realize he's been seeking us all along. He's whispered into our ear, he's beckoned to us, he's tapped us on the shoulder, and he's invited us into covenant with him. And when we respond in faith and we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in this pact, this agreement, this covenant that God initiates with us. Not only did God get it started, though, God keeps it going. That's what verse 5 tells us. It says he remembers his covenant forever. Now, that's good news because we don't always remember that covenant ourselves, do we? There's so many times that we break our end of the bargain. We let God down. We don't do the things that we are supposed to do. Isn't it good to know that God is completely and thoroughly trustworthy when it comes to his side of the covenant? He not only initiates it, he remembers it forever. And we find this truth not only in the Old Testament, we find it in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. If you've never memorized a Bible verse before, or if it's been a long time since you memorized Bible verses, then why don't you start with this one this afternoon? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Who began that work? He did. Who's going to carry it on to completion? He will. When is the end result? until Jesus comes again for us. So we are promised that in the New Testament. We're promised that here in Psalm 111 in the Old Testament. And so verses 5 and 9 of this Thanksgiving ABCs tells us that that's one of the things we need to thank God for. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for bringing me into covenant and keeping that covenant forever. If you need help with Thanksgiving, that'd be a good place to start. But verses 2 through 10 not only tell us uh, that God has saved us. Verses 2 through 10 also tell us that God guides us. Verses 5 and 9 speak of God saving us. Verses 7, 8, and 10 speak of God guiding us. Verses 5 and 9 speak of God saving us by means of a contract, a covenant. Verses 7, 8, and 10 talk about God guiding us by means of his precepts. Now, what are precepts? Precepts are maxims. Precepts are rules. Precepts are commandments. Precepts are, are digestible pieces of guidance. If you have a Bible, you have God's precepts. And so God guides us by means of his Bible, by means of the precepts that are found within the Bible. And verses 7, 8, and 10 tell us something about these precepts, about this Bible that we have. Now, as I said at the beginning, Psalm 111 is or could be called a Thanksgiving ABCs. It has these elementary, primary, fundamental, simple truths that are true about our relationship with God. And so in the simplest, primary, most elementary terms, we are told this about the Bible. It is trustworthy, it is steadfast, and as we follow that trustworthy and steadfast word, we have good understanding. Verse 7 says it is trustworthy. Verse 8 says it is steadfast. Verse 10 says if we follow that trustworthy and steadfast word, 
will be people of good understanding. So look at verse 7. God's word, it says, is trustworthy. It can be counted on. Today we use technical and theological terms like infallible or inerrant to say the same thing that Psalm 111 is saying, God's word can be counted on. When we look into God's word and it tells us about the virgin birth, when we look into God's word and it tells us about the miraculous acts of Jesus, when we look into God's word and it talks about the glorious resurrection of Jesus after his three uh, days in the grave, when the Bible tells us of the return of Jesus, we can count on those truths because they come to us from a trustworthy word. When we look into God's word and it tells us how to find a marriage partner or how to be happy within our marriage or how to raise our children or how to be stable in our, finance, our financial decisions, we can count on those things because they come to us from a trustworthy word. That's what verse 7 says. Verse 8 goes on to say not only is God's word trustworthy, it is also steadfast. What does that what does that tell you? That word tells you that when you look into God's word, you find it relevant and meaningful even today. You know, adults who've come into a relationship with Jesus and they start reading the Bible for the first time, they're often surprised to find how relevant and meaningful and up-to-date the Bible really is. Because really, you think about it, at its youngest point, the Bible is still 2,000 years old. It's older than that when you get into the Old Testament. And yet when you open it up today, it's still applicable. It's still relevant. It's still meaningful for all the various situations that you face today. Now, that's not true in any other setting, whether you're getting your news from whatever source you're getting your news from, when you read whatever opinion columnist you like to read, it doesn't matter from time to time those things, those opinions will change. The idea of what is right and what is wrong changes from time to time. That which is repulsive one day becomes commonplace the next. But when you look into God's word, it is steadfast. And if you're needing to thank God for something today, then thank God for his precepts that are trustworthy and steadfast. And then verse 10 goes on to say, if you will thank God for his trustworthy and steadfast word, and if you'll rely on those precepts, you'll become a person of understanding. You won't have to just wander in the dark through this world. This world is often confusing, often mesmerizing, but you walk through this world with a, as a person of understanding if you look into this trustworthy and steadfast word as it's described here in Psalm 111. So if you need a Thanksgiving do-over, if you need a Thanksgiving mulligan, then Psalm 111 is a good place to look because it tells us that we can thank God for saving us and we can thank God for guiding us. And then there's one more thing we see in here. We can thank God for watching over us as well. Thank God for watching over us. Verses 2, 3, 4, and 6 tell us about that. So verse 5, verse 7 tells us that we can thank God for saving us. And then, uh, uh, or, or verse 5 and verse 9 does. And then verses 7 and 8 and verse 10 tells us that we can thank God for guiding us. And now verses 2, 3, 4, and 6 tell us that we can thank God for watching over us. You know, it was this particular area right here that a guy named Seth McFarlane needed help with in particular. Many of you know that name, Seth McFarlane. He was the creator of an animated television show called Family Guy, which despite the title isn't exactly family friendly. I sent out a devotional thought this past week about Seth McFarlane and his absence of gratitude in his life. 
I write a devotional and send it out every Friday now called Winning Ways. And if you're not signed up for that, if you'll turn in your name and your email address on the connection card at the end of this message, then I'll send you that devotional every week in your email inbox as well. And, uh, and so pay attention at the end of the message. I'll tell you how to find that connection card online if you don't know where it is. But in this past week on Friday, I sent out as my Winning Ways devotional this story about Seth MacFarlane. He was booked on American Airlines Flight 11 out of Boston to New York, but he got there too late and he missed the flight. Well, that happens to people from time to time. The reason it's significant for MacFarlane was he missed that flight on September 11th, 2001. And Flight 11, as many people know, American Airlines Flight 11 was the one that, uh, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the flights that the uh, terrorists hijacked and then flew into the North Tower uh, of the World Trade Center. When McFarlane was a guest on NPR's Fresh Air program, host Terry Gross asked him the inevitable question that would come out of an experience like that. After that narrow escape, do you think of the rest of your life as a gift? Now, McFarlane is an outspoken atheist, and so he said, no, that experience didn't change me at all. It made no difference in the way I live my life. It made no difference in the way I look at things. It was just a coincidence. Now, he's not alone. He's just more blunt than other people. In Romans chapter 1, we are told that ingratitude is the very epitome of failure to acknowledge God in your life. That's interesting because in Romans chapter 1, if you've ever read it, it just lists off item after item of increasingly outlandish things that we can do with our behavior. And yet, when the Apostle Paul wanted to give a list of all the evidences of humanity veering off the road we should have been on, at the very bottom of the ditch we have veered off into is ingratitude. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? that of all the things that Paul lists off in Romans chapter 1, if you'll look at them, some of them might surprise you, might shock you when you realize that in comparison to all of these things, as far as Paul is concerned, the very worst we could do is maintain a spirit of apathetic ingratitude toward God. It displays the fact that if we are not atheists explicitly, we're at least functional atheists. That was the word that Martin Luther King Jr. used one time. He said that a lot of us are functional atheists. We might declare with our songs and with our words that we believe in the existence of God, but with the way we actually behave and go about our life, we think we're entirely on our own. We're functional atheists. And that may be true when it comes to how long it's been since you've expressed any real gratitude, any real thankfulness to God for anything that's gone on in your life. But if ingratitude is at the bottom of the ditch we've slid into, gratitude is the way we start getting out of that ditch. And we look at Psalm 111 and it tells us uh, the things for which we need to express gratitude. If you can't recall this past week, even once, lifting up any statement of gratitude to God on the day that we call Thanksgiving Day, then isn't it good that you're in here today or listening online where you get a chance to have a Thanksgiving do-over? Psalm 111 gives us the context and the content of good thanksgiving. The context is make a determination within your heart to praise God and make a determination to get together with other people who within their hearts also want to praise God. And when we do so, we need to lift up gratitude for three things. Thank you, God, 
for saving me. Thank you, God, for guiding me. Thank you, God, for watching over me. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a sermon titled, Into the World with Words and Deeds. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest To Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.